out. Everybody. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Lights Out Podcast. I'm your host, Josh. As always, I've got my producer, Joel, here in the studio with me. Today, we are covering the abandoned Lake Shawnee Amusement Park. This place is supposed to be full of paranormal activity due to its dark history spanning back hundreds and hundreds of years. I mean, what's creepier than an abandoned amusement park? I know, right? <laughs> it's interesting because I've I just started watching Freak Show on American Horror Story. Oh, nice. And so this, this place kind of gives me similar vibes to just kind of how some of the, you know, the tents and, and, you know, rides looked at one point. And so this one's uh, definitely a creepy one. I also wanted to update people on the paranormal activity in the studio because it seems to have ceased for the most part here in the studio. Well, actually, I take that back because on some of our other shows, there's actually been points where they have actually a soundboard where, you know, it plays like little sounds. There's one that's like the sound bites. Yeah, there's like little sound bites loaded onto the board. And in one of their episodes recently, they had sounds going off without anybody touching the buttons <laughs> which i mean again could just be a computer glitch but it's interesting because the timing of it was so perfect and the sound that kept playing over and over again at different points was boo wow how interesting is that right because we chill i know yeah so the, and they didn't even hear it one of the times they didn't even hear the sound during you know the recording it was in post mm-hmm. that they were editing the episode and all of a sudden boo just comes up and just out of nowhere yeah and nobody was even remotely close to the board that's so creepy so nobody could have pressed it and that still happens not exactly that but when i'm editing you know there's still some camera glitches and some weird stuff with the electronics but it's true not as frequent as i've seen in the past yeah so as as far as like what we've experienced on this show it's been pretty minimal lately Mm. which is good but it seems as if whatever was happening in here maybe has moved inside of my house. Yes. Because we record in a basically a garage I built in my backyard. And now inside my house, we've been having some some slight paranormal happenings. Oh, yeah. So recently, I was out of town. Joel was staying at my house. And he had a very, honestly bone chilling yeah. experience so i had a few experiences this time so one of the times um you know i was just walking back through the front door after letting the dogs out and while i was passing your dining room on the left side i mean it was already dark inside there was no lights on and i just remember walking through and just in my peripherals on my left side i noticed quite a large black shadow just kind of standing there very you know uh still and it just really sticked out to me because normally I would think there's something there. But when I looked over there, it was like the shadow was gone. So it seemed that whatever was there just disappeared once it noticed I was looking at it. And then uh, another time um, I woke up in the morning. and you Was know, this the next day or a few days the later? The following day. So oh, wow. saw the apparition maybe second day in, third day in, woke up that morning and my girlfriend actually spotted you know, some, some claw marks, uh, on my back and my left side. And, uh, we'll put some pictures up so you guys can see, but clearly it looked like, like three nail marks going down my back on two places. And there's some bruising. And what was strange about it was when I touched it, it, it didn't hurt or anything. Um, but it was definitely there. So I asked Josh, I was like, 
hey, you know, have you ever woken up to some claw marks? Like, is it your dogs? Is it? And, you know, obviously it wasn't. So I was just very spooky that yeah. I woke up with some claw marks. And, you know, my girlfriend couldn't acknowledge anything that happened that yeah it wasn't like she those. scratched yeah it wasn't anything. like she scratched so, me i mean so. if you got scratched the way that these marks look yeah. you would have woken up 100 right. and so to not wake up mm-hmm. and just the next day they're there you notice them that's very weird yeah and then one more creepy thing was one night when i was getting out of the hot tub i was walking back upstairs and i just heard some country music playing and i was looking around i was like where the hell is this country music coming from and it was coming from the garage like this, the radio just turned on in, in the garage and I opened the garage and it's just pitch black. And that was just like the creepiest moment for me when I walk into the pitch black garage and I just hear some country music. That's interesting. And I saw like, you know, your speaker up on the fridge or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, was going to say like, I have a speaker in there, but that's weird that it would it just turned come on, on by like itself. That. And, you know, I think it was a Sono speaker and I wasn't even, you know, they're not even connected this. to each other. That's, that's really interesting. Cause mm-hmm. yeah, like the Sono speaker system, if you've ever used one of those before, you can like link them all up. Yeah. And so whatever you play, like I have a portable one that I think you took outside yeah. for a while you're in the hot tub. That's really weird that it just started. With, yeah. And were you listening to country music? No, outside? I, yeah. I don't have country yeah. music on my playlist. So, like I like country music, but it's not something I'm going to listen to all the time. Yeah. So that's really weird that really frightens me so i mean i've had there's been so many times where tvs in my house just turn on randomly and they're not like voice i don't have siri i don't have alexa i don't have any of that shit and they would just come on randomly and just start playing some random show or or channel and then like i would come back later on and they'd just be off and i'd be like what the fuck like is that just some timer or something yeah but then the apparition in my dining room is really interesting to me because there was one night where I was, I, it was like really late. I think it was like two in the morning or mm-hmm. something like that. And my wife had already gone to sleep. My dogs were already asleep in the bed. And I happened to get up because I heard this like knocking, like persistent knocking on coming from the front of my house. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what the fuck? But yeah. what was weird about it is I was the only one that heard it. My dogs didn't hear it because they go off if they hear yeah, anybody they hit the door, any knock or anything. Yeah. They'll go off, but they were dead asleep. Mm-hmm. So I like, kind of rush out to the to that area of the house yeah. and i'm expecting to like see i'm like we have some crazy neighbors or like you know maybe sure. it's some kid playing a prank or something yeah and there's i went out the front door and there's absolutely nobody there yeah but it was like banging on my window and it was right where you the dining room you was. saw that person Ugh, which is creepy so as fuck. creepy and you also have the ring doorbells in motion detection on your right, front exactly. door so you would have got the notification on your yeah. phone like hey someone's at That's my front door very true nothing so it went under the radar to the cameras and to your dogs yeah so, so that's that's my life. <laughs> so I don't know if I'm dealing with a poltergeist or what. But, uh, but I, honestly, honestly, I think, you know, I don't necessarily believe it's something demonic or something evil that is mm-hmm. is here. Or I think it could be something ancestral. I think it could even be, you know, some people say that even like spirit guides can do stuff like that to get your attention or an ancestral spirit. So loved one that's passed, maybe is trying to get your attention for some reason and I mean, it's very easy to be like, oh, my God, claw marks on you. It's like, you know, watch out. You've got demonic activity happening. But Mm -hmm. I I personally never feel anything like evil. I never feel like something's watching me or like is out to hurt me. I think that there's a either a spirit guide or something like that that's trying to communicate or it's it's a past loved one that uh-huh. maybe you know, passed away in the house especially my wife because she's lost her grandparents oh yeah in the last year and we have 
you know, some mementos and things like that from from their house and from, you know, shirts and clothing and mm-hmm. stuff. So it's very possible that something around that is causing some of the activity. Absolutely, but. because you had those mementos before you moved into this house, like a long time ago in one, one of your apartments, you experienced some paranormal yeah, activity exactly. because you had similar type of thing where it was a shadowy figure kind mm-hmm. of standing in the corner. And, and even my pets noticed it, which was interesting. And pets yes that too was just laying in bed the you know the dogs will start looking over in the corner and there's no one there and they're just locked eyes on something yeah yeah man i really think there is something going on here on this property i think there is i think there is and you guys even saged the place before you moved in so oh, you yeah. guys already done i mean we we do that pretty consistently we're always burning incense we're always i mean we've got we've got so many crystals that it, do. <laughs> it blows people's minds sometimes how many crystals we have lying around. So, and uh, I personally think we have pretty good vibes around here, and you do. everybody's pretty happy. Or all of our animals are happy. So yeah. I don't, I don't know. I think, I think something unexplained is happening, and you know, I just hope it's not something evil. You know, yeah. and I don't think it is. I think it's something that's just trying to communicate or trying to get our attention. So I don't know. It's funny. I was joking around with uh, my wife and you know her her co-host, and we're talking about how. Maybe we should get the Ouija board out and see <laughs> see what we can communicate with. And they're like, absolutely not. Don't ever bring that in here. Because again, I mean, those are, as we know, with Veronica and some of yeah. the other horror stories out there, if you don't know what you're doing with the Ouija board, it can go very, very bad. So very true. probably not a good idea to do that. But yeah, yeah, just wanted to share some of that paranormal activity happening here absolutely. at the, the home front. Because when it's, you when you told me about the scratch, I was like, damn, that's crazy. Because yeah. Because my wife Kendall has had that ha- not in the house, but at that apartment we were talking mm-hmm. about that we used to live in. She did wake up one morning with scratch marks, uh, kind of in between wow. uh, her chest there, and it was exactly the same type of scratch marks. Wow. And if you just look up like spirit scratching, yeah, it's these red marks, but then they go away like pretty quickly. Yeah, it's mine's gone now. So, so. that's really crazy, though. Yeah, I know. God, do we need to do a paranormal investigation <laughs> on my own house? I know. I, I always say that. I'm like, maybe I fucking should. Maybe yeah. I should set up like some motion cameras and like. But that's the thing is like, but it, when I stayed here the whole week, I, it was just, it was like inconsistent but consistent. You yeah, know, it's not like right. stuff's happening all the time where I can have the cameras ready. It's like, when it happens, it's already over by the time I have my phone up and right. You it's know, so fat. That's the thing about it. It's capturing paranormal activities the hardest fucking thing to yeah. do, and I, I think. Shows like Ghost Adventures and Ghost Hunters, they make it look easy. <laughs> they do. Because, I mean, A, they have so much equipment and that's all they're doing all day. But, you know, in real life, like, it's very hard to catch shit yeah. like that because it's like there and gone in mm-hmm. a split matter of seconds. You don't have time to even really react to it other than, like, holy shit, is that what I just heard? Is that what I just right. saw? So it like, makes you question your reality a little bit. It so. really does. So that's the paranormal activity that's happening at my house. But let's get into the paranormal activity and the very dark history of the Lake Shawnee Abandoned Amusement Park. Also, this episode of Lights Out Podcast is brought to you by Babel, HelloFresh, and Care Of. So the Lake Shawnee Amusement Park opened in 1926 in Rock, West Virginia, which is just outside of Princeton and operated for about 40 years. The property where the park was built, though, has a very dark history that dates back hundreds of years. In 1774, the land was granted to a man named Mitchell Clay for his service in the French and Indian War. Mitchell was born in Virginia around 1734, and he married Phoebe Belcher in 1760, 
and the two of them eventually had 16 children together. The family moved onto the land in 1775. At the time, they had 12 children. Mitchell established a farm on the 803-acre plot of land, which included property on either side of the Bluestone River. There, they built a cabin for their whole family, and they also had a field for livestock to graze, a tobacco field, and a wheat field, along with an orchard and a small garden to grow their own produce, and they called the estate Clover Bottom. The Clay family were the first white settlers in what is now Mercer County, West Virginia. And for a while, everything was fine. But then there was a problem. The white settlers had a hostile history with the local Shawnee Native American tribe, and those tensions eventually boiled over. Not much is known about how the Shawnee came to the area initially. By 1600, there were at least 10,000 tribesmen settled all along the Ohio River Valley. They had shared history with several other tribes, and these groups got along well and lived harmoniously. Leaders of the Shawnee tribe inherited their titles and held the position for life. The larger group was divided into separate clans, and the area where the principal chief lived was called the Chilakati, and the Chilakati functioned like the capital city of the tribe. The Shawnee also had war chiefs, which were chosen based on skill and experience, not heredity. Around the year 1630, the Iroquois Confederacy, which was a group of tribes who came from the northeast, started attacking the Shawnee village, driving them further south, away from the Ohio River Valley. And instead of settling on the abandoned land, the Iroquois used it for a hunting ground. The first treaty between the Shawnee and European settlers was in 1682. Many of the customs of the Shawnee clashed with the traditional European values. For example, the tribe's council included both men and women. And when the Quakers questioned why they would allow women to make crucial decisions for the group, a tribesman replied that some women were wiser than men. And ain't that the truth? Decades went by, and the Quakers continued settling and building on the land, as tensions between them and the tribesmen rose. By about 1730, Iroquois tribes had gotten weaker, and the Shawnee started to return to the land that they'd been driven away from a hundred years earlier. Some of them settled in the area. That includes modern-day Princeton and southern West Virginia. And by now, the French and the British had a stronghold in the area, including trading posts and military forces. Both wanted to make the Shawnee their allies, and for a few decades, the Shawnee sometimes sided with the French, and sometimes with the British, in multiple conflicts. In 1758, they agreed to a treaty with the British, along with several other tribes. The Native Americans were promised limited colonial settlements to the West, and guaranteed access to hunting grounds around the Ohio River Valley. But rebellious colonists continued to push the boundaries of those borders, and settle in areas that went against the treaty's terms. In 1768, 10 years after signing the treaty, the British claim areas in West Virginia and Kentucky, officially breaking the treaty and moving onto Native American lands. In response to the land that they were promised being invaded, the Shawnee started attacking settlers. During the Revolutionary War, most of the Shawnee sided with the British crown, fighting against the colonists, as they believed that this was their best chance of saving their land. The Shawnee were a peaceful tribe who preferred to stay out of conflicts, but when necessary, they were fierce warriors who triumphed in battle. A white settler named Mary Jemison was adopted by a tribe in the late 1750s when she was just 15 years old. According to her accounts, they were capable of unspeakable violence toward their enemies. As they traveled, Mary saw a tribesmen string scalps, human scalps, of their enemies on a pole and then carry them over his shoulder. When they arrived at the village, 
Mary saw the bodies of white settlers chopped to pieces. Heads, arms, legs, and other body parts were hung on poles and roasted over a fire until the skin was black. She was shocked and horrified by the blood and gore. But though the Shawnee didn't hesitate to violently attack and kill enemies, they treated Mary well. When her adopted brother offered to free her after the Revolutionary War, she said no and chose to stay with her tribe. By then, she had kids of her own and considered the Shawnee to be her family. So her brother gave her a plot of land that she could leave to her children, which was a demonstration of the generosity and the empathy the Shawnee could exhibit. Now circling back to Mitchell Clay and his family, as they were about to learn what the Shawnee did to those they considered to be enemies, just one month before the end of the Revolutionary War, in August 1783, Mitchell had harvested the grain crop. Fences had been built around the crop to keep it safe from wandering livestock. And Mitchell asked his two oldest sons, 18-year-old Bartley and 16-year-old Ezekiel, to finish securing the grain. After that, they left for a hunting trip. And he was hunting for game to preserve in the family's larder, which was a storage area where raw meat could be preserved for the winter. And while their father was away, his older children did chores around the farm. Bartley and Ezekiel worked on building the fence to secure the stacks of grain while their oldest sibling, 20-year-old Tabitha, was at the river washing with some of her sisters. Phoebe was back at the family's cabin, watching over her youngest children. And they had no idea that 11 members of the Shining tribe were slowly closing in, ready to attack. And seemingly out of nowhere, Bartley was shot and fell to the ground. Tabitha heard the shot from the river. And when she ran over, a tribesman was standing over Bartley with a hunting knife. Before Bartley could be scalped, Tabitha lunged at the tribesman and attempted to wrestle the knife away from him. She was unarmed and outnumbered, but she fought as hard as she could to try to save her brother. She put up a good fight, but in the end, the tribesman stabbed her multiple times with the hunting knife and then cut her body into multiple pieces. The younger Clay sisters had to run to the cabin to tell their mother what was happening. A man named Ligon Blankenship was visiting the Clay family's farm when the attack started and was actually with Phoebe when the young girls ran up to her, screaming. Phoebe begged Ligon to go and save her children from the Shawnee, but in an incredible act of cowardice, he fled the property instead. He told the other settlers in the area that the entire Clay family had been massacred, assuming the Shawnee would eventually get to the cabin and kill them all. Tabitha and Bartley were dead, but the Shawnee didn't kill anyone else. They scalped them both and captured Ezekiel before leaving the farm. Phoebe made sure they were all gone before she went outside. She then gathered the mutilated bodies of her children and brought them back to the cabin and put them on a bed. She rounded up the younger kids and went to the nearest neighbor's house, which was about six miles away, to wait for her husband to return. She didn't know that Mitchell was already on his way back from the hunting trip, and the night before he had actually had a terrifying nightmare of a tribe massacring his entire family. And this dream felt so real that he felt no choice but to go home immediately. When he arrived at Clover Bottom, he saw pools of blood around the unfinished fence. And then he just took off towards the cabin. When he saw what was left of Bartley and Tabitha in the bed, he thought his nightmare had come true and just assumed that his entire family was dead. He went after the tribe on horseback, intending to fight to the death if he had to as at this point he had nothing left to lose. But when he caught up with the Shawnee, they didn't kill him. They stole his horse and then continued on their way. 
Meanwhile, a group of settlers had come together to help the Clay family bury Bartley and Tabitha. The adult men then went off to hunt down the tribe and get Ezekiel back. 11-year-old Mitchell Jr. and 9-year-old Charles joined the men to avenge their murdered siblings and save their older brother. That night, they caught up to the Shawnee traveling on horseback as they had stopped and set up camp. The settlers made a plan to attack at dawn. The next morning, the first tribesmen to wake up and wander away from the camp was immediately shot dead. And that's when the battle began and multiple tribesmen were killed. Charles followed an injured man up a hill. He begged for his life, but Charles brutally murdered him anyway. A chilling detail since he wasn't even 10 years old. Unfortunately, the Shawnee had separated into multiple groups and the group that had Ezekiel escaped. The settlers were able to track the second group back to their capital city, but it was too late. The tribe had already learned about the Shawnee massacre, and minutes before the settlers arrived, Ezekiel was ceremoniously burned at the stake, which obviously when they found this out, the settlers were just extremely pissed and enraged. And instead of burying the Shawnee killed in the battle, they stripped off their skin and used it to make razor straps to polish their blades. And these straps were kept in the men's families for generations. These violent events that took place are referred to collectively as the Clover Bottom Massacre. Mitchell and Phoebe were devastated by the deaths of their children, and they left Clover Bottom and moved to another farm and never returned. The land stayed in the Clay family, and it was eventually bought by Mitchell's son-in-law, George Pierce, who married his second oldest daughter, Rebecca. Not much is known about the Clay property until the 1920s when it was purchased by entrepreneur Conley Snitto. Conley thought this was the perfect place to build an elaborate amusement park, which I'm assuming probably doesn't know too much about that massacre when he did this. His crew first broke ground in the middle of a grassy field to build the circular swing ride. Then they erected a Ferris wheel, which was one of the star attractions of the park, an architectural marvel. The people of the time were still awestruck by a giant wheel that carried people high into the sky in rocking bucket seats. The park also had fantastic water features. There was a cement swimming pool called the Cement Pond with two water slides, multiple diving boards, and a bathhouse. And visitors could rent old-fashioned wool bathing suits for 10 or 15 cents. That sounds super comfortable. Can you imagine swimming in a wool bathing suit? (laughs) That'd be rubbing your skin oh so God. bad. Talk about chafing. <laughs> Jesus yeah. Christ. There was also a larger pond where guests could take canoe and paddle boat rides. Conley included plenty of entertainment for adult visitors, including Wild West shows, a racetrack, a dance hall, and even a speakeasy. Prohibition wouldn't end in the United States until 1933, and the amusement park speakeasy became a popular spot in southern West Virginia. Mercer County had a large population of coal miners and their families. And Conley created the perfect place for these families, you know what, to just kick back, have some fun, and enjoy themselves after a hard day's work or a week of work. He even included cabins on the property where guests could stay overnight. The Lake Shawnee Amusement Park officially opened in 1926 and attracted visitors from all over the country. And for a while, everything was great. Guests were happy. Conley was making a nice profit from his investment. Building the amusement park was turning out to be one of the most profitable business ventures. On weekends in the summer, especially during the 4th of July weekend, over 10,000 visitors regularly came to the park. But eventually, as with most amusement parks, especially ones back in the day, tragedy struck. On May 31st, 1957, 
eight-year-old Brent Lada's Tabor was riding his bike on the road around the park when he was struck by a drunk driver and killed. Guests assumed that this was nothing more than a freak accident and continued to enjoy the amusement park, one of the only sources for a family entertainment in the area. But unfortunately, the deaths kept coming. On June 4th, 1961, Juanita Harmon brought her five children to Lake Shawnee to go swimming. The pool was crowded that day and there were two lifeguards on duty, so Juanita felt sure that the afternoon of swimming was perfectly safe for her family. Her six-year-old son, Wayne, had taken swimming lessons the year before, and he was an excellent swimmer. But no one noticed when he slipped under the water in the deep end of the pool and didn't come up. Another kid in the deep section kicked something under the water and then started screaming out to the lifeguards. Which, what the hell are these lifeguards doing? That's like lifeguard 101 is watch the deep end for kids swimming over there like so Juanita was horrified when she realized this kid was talking about her son and she had to watch a lifeguard pull Wayne's lifeless body from the water they immediately started mouth-to-mouth resuscitation to try to get him breathing again but he was unresponsive when the ambulance arrived emergency responders used a resuscitator in order to force oxygen into his lungs to hopefully save him. They then continued to try and revive Wayne on the way to the hospital, but he was pronounced dead on arrival. Over the 4th of July weekend in 1966, a local boy named John Taylor was swimming at Lake Shawnee. He had just celebrated his 12th birthday on July 2nd. John was a shy, quiet kid, but he was looking forward to starting 7th grade at Princeton Junior High School that fall. While he was out swimming, he got his arm stuck in the drain pipe under the water and couldn't move. A little while later, his mother Catherine came to the park to pick him up, but she couldn't find him anywhere. And as she walked around the pool, she saw something floating under the water. It was her son John. After his arm got stuck, he couldn't come up for air or scream for help, and drowned. By the time Catherine found him, he'd been dead so long, any hope of reviving him was long gone. So after the second drowning happened, Hopefully all the lifeguards were literally fired and maybe hire a few more. But nope, that was it. The pool was closed down and filled with sand. But this didn't stop the park from escaping other tragic deaths. Later that year, a young girl was on the circular swings while the driver of a truck delivering soda to the park was trying to maneuver nearby. She was about 10 years old and wore a pink dress with ruffles. The driver was backing up near the ride and slammed into the swing she was sitting on, which crushed her. Witnesses remember the ground below the swings and the girl's body being covered in blood. She died before an ambulance arrived. By 1967, over 40 years after the park opened, a total of six people had died there. And that year, the health department inspected the land and ordered it to be immediately closed as there were serious sewage problems and the water was contaminated. The rides were all shut down, some were sold off, but everything else on the property sat abandoned for almost 20 years. But then in 1985, a businessman named Gaylord White bought the land and the remnants of the abandoned amusement park. He had worked there actually in his younger days and dreamed of reopening the park. He also thought that the property would be perfect for a housing development. By 1987, he made his dream a reality and he tracked down the original circular swing ride in New Jersey and brought it back to the park. He also brought in a vintage Ferris wheel, paddle boats, and bumper boats, and he built a stage for live music. The park then celebrated its reopening over the 4th of July weekend in 1987. Almost 10,000 people flocked to the park 
paying just a dollar admission, going on the rides and watching live bands that performed all day and night. But it was short-lived. There weren't enough visitors to keep the park open. Those that did come reported strange things, like seeing visions or apparitions of ghostly children running through the park and hearing voices. Almost everyone who visited the park felt a heavy presence all around them. Gaylord even experienced these things himself. One day he heard chanting coming from a wooded area. It sounded like dozens of people were participating in a Native American chant. And when he went to check it out, there was no one there. Another day he was on his tractor just mowing the field when he felt an invisible force pushing down on his shoulders. And when he looked toward the swing ride, no one was there. But then he saw a little girl sitting in one of the swings. She just appeared out of nowhere and was wearing a pink ruffled dress. Next thing he knew, she was sitting on the tractor with him. And he realized the pressure on his shoulders was her trying to push him off the tractor. He then climbed down and offered it to the little girl. But then she vanished. He left the tractor in that exact spot for months. And when he tried to start it again, he discovered a fuel leak which could have caused an explosion or fire if he had kept using it. So maybe the little girl tried to save his life or tried to sabotage the tractor to kill him. Gaylord tried to keep the park open, but with a significant increase in insurance rates, he just couldn't afford it. In 1988, he shut down the rides and started his next venture, hosting fishing tournaments and other activities on the property to bring in paying customers. He also had plans for a future housing development, but before that was put in place, something shocking happened. In the early 90s, Gaylord hired a crew to convert a piece of the property into a track for mud bogging, which is a type of racing where vehicles compete by driving through a pit of mud. After the crew broke ground, they made a gruesome discovery. Human remains, including several skulls, were buried there. They had actually stumbled upon an ancient burial ground, a mass grave of children that had been there for hundreds of years. Archaeologists from Marshall University and Concord College spent years on the site to complete two excavations. They recovered thousands of Native American artifacts and countless bones. Altogether, there were over 25,000 artifacts, including jewelry, pottery, and a variety of tools. Based on the artifacts found, there were two separate Shawnee villages on the property when they were buried there. They found over a dozen complete skeletons of primarily young children before they stopped digging. And one of the bodies was a 14-year-old girl and an infant, and it looked like she had died while giving birth. They decided not to disturb the gravesite any further and believe there may be up to 3,000 children buried on the property. And these skeletons most likely date back to 1282, when thousands of Shawnee children died from some type of infection or disease that caused deterioration of their bones and teeth. After this discovery, Historians theorize that it may be what prompted the Shawnee to attack the Clay family, as the Clay family had unknowingly settled on sacred land. So you could probably see how this place would be extremely haunted mm-hmm. based on this history of Lake Shawnee. Before we get into the hauntings part of it, and some of the most terrifying experience that people have had at this abandoned amusement park, We're going to take a quick ad break and we'll be right back. All right, let's get into some of the hauntings of the Lake Shawnee Abandoned Amusement Park, which was actually named one of the most terrifying places in America by the Travel Channel. And it's no wonder 
with such a tragic and violent history. Many people believe that it's actually one of the most haunted places in the world, and it seems that the bloodshed and trauma experienced on the property may have permanently been embedded into the land. Others are sure that the people who lost their lives there never left, and that the land has been cursed since Mitchell Clay first broke ground in 1774 and disturbed the ancient burial ground. In the late 90s, after the archaeologists finished their work, Gaylord White and his wife Jewel, along with their son Gaylord Jr., started hosting tours of the property as they wanted to share its rich history and the paranormal activity they had experienced. The rides are all still there, but everything is rusted and overgrown with trees and tall grass. Paranormal experts, ghost hunters, and just YouTubers have taken an interest in the property. They have traveled from across the country to come and experience and document the strange phenomena that happens at the park. People often feel like they're in the presence of children's spirits, especially around the areas where children have died. One of the YouTubers that's actually been to the park and done a pretty good job at documenting some of the paranormal activity and just some of her experience has been Chris Starr. So I'm gonna play a little clip of her experience at the park. Guys, this is it. I definitely feel like there is a child spirit here. Oh, this is wild. Like, this is freaking wild. Apparently, the spirit of a young boy often greets visitors at the park's entrance. And based on the description, this is most likely 12-year-old John Taylor, who drowned in the pool in 1966. Visitors have heard voices when no one is around, footsteps falling behind them, and the eerie sound of children giggling. It's common to hear the voices of children running around the abandoned park structures, and some have even heard the distinct sound of Native American chants. God, I don't know which one's more creepy, hearing children running around in the pitch dark when there's clearly no children there or hearing Native American chanting. Honestly, for me, chanting, because that's a whole like ritual yeah. they're doing right there. Yeah, yeah. They could be summoning like something on you or something. So yeah, I'd have to agree with you. I think the children would be a little less scary, even though giggling children in the pitch dark is not, yeah, that is not an enjoyable experience. But I, I agree with you. I think hearing chanting would definitely freak me out more. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah, Some, something it's a little bit more sinister and right. serious serious tone to it versus because like children most of the time aren't going to be a threat so hearing some giggling unless they were like chucky have a knife or something but yeah in reality an entity right. isn't going to have that but, right yes yeah. something chanting something about is, chanting like yeah and like a drum beating like, slow, <laughs> like oh my god what's about to happen right yeah that's wild but there's also a particular swing that often moves on its own as if the spirit of a child is waiting for the ride to start up again. It twists and turns when the air is still and no one is around. And it's more active after dark. Some have even seen a vision of a young girl sitting on the swing. The same girl who was killed there in 1966. Visitors like to leave gifts for her, like dolls and stuffed animals. Even if someone has no idea which of the swings she died on, they are all still drawn to it and can feel a presence there. The air around the swing is always cold no matter what the temperature is outside. And the middle of the seat is always warm as if someone had just been sitting on it. Sometimes a little girl wanders the property wearing her ruffled pink dress covered in blood. Other objects on the property can move on their own even if no one is touching them and there's no wind. When an object moves, 
it's often followed immediately by whispers or giggles. When the Discovery Channel TV crew visited the property, a crew member stepped into the dilapidated ticket box and got trapped inside. She wasn't able to open the door no matter how hard she pushed and pulled, even though the door had no locks on it. So it was like it was nailed shut. Yeah, while she was inside. Good God. And she was so panicked by the time she was rescued, she had to be taken to the hospital for treatment, assuming from shock and just panic attack. In addition to remnants of the amusement park, other items have been abandoned on the property. This isn't creepy at all. There are multiple school buses and cars, including a wooden coffin that just sit there. Literally just a coffin laying on the ground wide open, like as if something was in it and broke out. Resurrected. (laughs) Jesus. Oh my God. The old abandoned buses are also known for paranormal activity. Visitors have reported getting a bad feeling when stepping close to one of them. And this feeling can be so intense that people have refused to even step inside the vehicle. When one group brought their dogs to the site, they hesitated as they were led inside one of these buses. And they could see the hair on the dog's backs was just sticking straight up. Which is a common sign of fear in dogs. The activity around the buses picks up significantly after dark. And some people have gotten such bad vibes that they physically can't step any closer. A haunted house was added to the property to entertain visitors. And one of the tunnels inside the house leads directly into one of these abandoned school buses. The haunted house is filled with toys and stuffed animals for the ghosts of children, which just makes it even creepier. And it's strange to walk through a haunted house in a place that's really haunted. Even seasoned ghost hunters can get freaked out. When a Boy Scout troop visited the property, one of the scouts was sitting behind the wheel of a bus, and his friend snapped a picture through the front window. And when they looked at the picture, a man or a boy was standing right behind him, even though he was alone inside the bus. The Ferris wheel no longer operates, but visitors have seen ghostly figures standing up in the buckets and a mysterious dark mass moving overhead. As people walk around the property, they may feel someone tugging on their clothes or touching their arm. And when they turn around, no one's there. When people take pictures, especially at night, they often capture light anomalies. Other times, cameras and other electronic equipment malfunction or the batteries just die without warning. So no pictures or video can be taken at all. One visitor accidentally used a camera feature that detects faces. And when he examined the photo later, he saw that he had captured what looked like a person's face on the Ferris wheel. It's hard to take a picture at the park that doesn't include floating orbs. Paranormal experts believe orbs captured on film are spirits at just a low frequency, or even one that has negative energy. The most common experiences of people who visit the park are associated with lower frequencies, which are caused by trauma and emotional pain that attach to a certain area or object. This can manifest as physical sensations like sudden pressure, which was what Gaylord White felt on his shoulders while on his tractor. It can also feel like a prickly sensation on the skin or an abrupt temperature change, And people who are affected by the presence of spirits may even feel unexplained dizziness, nausea, anxiety, or stress. A person may even take on the emotions of the spirit and experience an unbearable sadness, anger, fear, or hopelessness that lingers until they leave the property. And even then, it can continue for hours or days. Taking on the emotion of a spirit without warning or explanation can be very overwhelming to some people. It can feel like the spirit is inhabiting their body, which can actually lead to symptoms of PTSD. But after nearly 50 years of marriage, Gaylord White died in 2010. 
his wife Jewel continued to care for the park with their oldest son, Gaylord Jr. Four years later, though, Gaylord Jr. died suddenly at just 52 years old. Jewel wasn't sure what to do and asked one of her younger sons, Chris White, for help. And he agreed to take over the property and started making changes to the tours. Jewel worried that her deceased husband and son would be unhappy, as Chris was implementing policies and activities that they had nixed when they were alive. She believed their spirits were still in the park, and she could often feel their presence. She felt her husband most strongly around the Ferris wheel, which was his favorite pet project. She could also feel Gaylord Jr.'s presence inside the abandoned school bus where he often stayed. And late one night, a security camera aimed at the Ferris wheel caught a sudden movement as one of the safety bars unfastened on its own. And when Jewel watched the footage, she knew right away that Gaylord was checking on his favorite ride and giving his blessing for what the park had become. Six months after Gaylord Jr. died, a picture was taken of the school bus, and apparently his face was clearly visible in one of the windows. Jewel believed this meant he was still living on the bus and approved of how the park was being run by his younger brother. There are multiple memorials on the property for the Clay children who died there in 1783, and Conley Snitto, the founder of the Lake Shawnee Amusement Park. Conley actually put up the memorials for the Clay children in 1937. A headstone sits on the exact spot where Bartley and Tabitha Clay were buried after being brutally murdered. Chris White still owns and manages the property and offers paranormal tours of the abandoned amusement park. And there are also private tours by request. Photo history tours are offered year-round and are advertised as fun for all ages. But other attractions aren't for the faint of heart. Each October, guests flock to the park to participate in the Dark Carnival. The carnival is held from 8pm to midnight. During the storytelling by a campfire, guests hear first-hand accounts from people who actually visited the park when it was operational. Others talk about paranormal experiences they've had on the property. There's the haunt at Lake Nightmare. As an eerie fog settles over the lake, everyone is led on a tour of the property. They go through the haunted house, around the lake, and then through a haunted corn maze. When walking through the corn maze, guests never know what's coming around each corner, as volunteer actors pop up out of nowhere and those who are deathly afraid of clowns don't make it very far. I don't know what's more terrifying than seeing a clown in a corn maze. That gives me flashbacks to my childhood, for sure. <laughs> and you're absolutely terrified of clowns, too. Aren't yeah. You? yeah. You and I both were. Really fucking scared. Yeah, clown. don't fuck with clowns. Man. And that was even before we seen the movie It. I mean, just clowns in general are just... just yeah, just a clown in general. <laughs> I've, never, I've never understood how like kids find clowns entertaining. No. Like, even when we went to like the damn circus and saw clowns, yeah. I'd be like, all oh, those guys are freaks. Like they do look like freaks. <laughs> like God, yeah. like what is so funny or like, I don't get entertaining it. about looking at a, somebody with makeup on. Like it's just, it's just weird. It to is. Me, honestly, it really is. I mean, no offense to clowns. No, but like, no, it's just, I don't get it just for you and I personally. Yeah. It always scared us. So yeah. But the truly terrifying part is experiencing something paranormal at Lake Shawnee which is much more common after the sun goes down. In fact, everyone who participates is required to sign a waiver of liability agreement, acknowledging that the tour is potentially dangerous and might lead to property damage, injury, or even death. And those who are brave enough can even camp out in the park. As paranormal activity picks up after midnight, and after two in the morning, some people can't stand it anymore. Many who sign up don't even make it through the night and flee the property long before sunrise.
Sounds like a honestly a really fucking cool place to to visit. Yeah, seems like a great opportunity to catch some legitimate evidence. Yeah, yeah. and honestly, I hundred percent believe that this place is haunted. I mean, it's mm-hmm. very clear from the history that there's obviously a lot of residual energy left over there, and definitely makes for a hot spot of oh, paranormal yeah. activity for sure. Just the only risk is you never know if these things can follow you well, what, yeah what you're dealing with yeah exactly kind of like going back to what we were i mean what ta- happens if you do something and you get cursed or something yeah and then, or something attaches to you or and even like with your example uh, you know gr- even just grandfather's clothes at one place yeah followed you here to this house even after moving so just something that simple too definitely don't take a souvenir home from this place <laughs> yeah i wouldn't take a single thing from i'm no. sure people do take stuff from here and like mm-hmm. i bet there's see experiences people have after taking i mean just there's got to be a lot of clutter that people find and yeah yeah you know so seriously it's it's a interesting one for sure it's i feel like it's not one of the more well-known spots that at least i've heard of before but yeah same but lake shawnee amusement park man sounds like a honestly a paranormal investigator's yeah. like paradise pa- paranormal paradise yeah. paranormal paradise for sure but you will have to let us know what you think about the lake shawnee amusement park maybe you've been there maybe you've had your own experiences we'd love to hear it but that concludes this episode of the lights out podcast hopefully you found this episode spooky and interesting i know we did also make sure you're subscribed to lights out on apple podcasts and youtube we'd really appreciate it It does really help us out as well as following us on spotify but with that being said we'll see you guys next week until then lights out everybody